Welcome to Machine Learning. This is David Nishimoto. It's a recap of this week. Um, so, again, this week I've been doing lots of with uh, statistical learning and uh, finishing up the last chapter, which is now looking at um, trying to figure out why the beak size of the finch on this particular island got bigger. And one idea was that there was a drought in 76. So they started collecting the data in 75. There's a drought in 76. And they did notice that, um, that during the drought, the seeds that survived were larger seeds. So that, then would require for the finches to have bigger beaks to break those seeds. And um, so that was one idea. And then the, the next idea um, was to, to do a hereditary test to see if there's something in the genetics of the bird that uh, was causing the beaks to get larger. So it's kind of, it was kind of where I'm at right now is kind of trying to figure out the detective work, which is the important part of, of uh, drawing conclusions is finding data. And um, I think it's going to be interesting because we're just at the, this early stage of Internet of Things where we're starting to gather data. And uh, in order to make sense of data, you need to have some sort of framework or uh, hypothesis and uh, you know the the, the whole uh, idea of AI was generalized AI is that it can form its own hypothesis but uh, as far as I know that there isn't algorithms that uh, form hypothesis gather its own data and then draw conclusions um, but you can see how as there's more data that becomes available that the internet will, and especially GitHub, will be a, a central area for exchanging those ideas. And I've already started using my GitHub to uh, gather data and, and uh, analyze it and then make conclusions. And I think, you know, that's gonna be the process uh, for corporations also is to, uh, gather their data, analyze it, and then form hypothesis, test those hypothesis, and then um, uh, start to uh, make decisions based on that data. And on the strength of those hypotheses, then you can start uh, making conclusions and strategies um, on, on directions to go. And so I don't think that we think probabilistic. I think we, uh, we're, we're, you know, we're more people that uh, we make decisions based on experience and perceptions and likes and dislikes. But when we actually start making decisions on data, I think it's going to change a lot of our conclusions or assumptions that we're making about the way the world works. And so... Uh, probability and possibility are going to be more 
I guess probability and possibility are the same thing, but uh, probability is going to, and timing is going to be critical. We need to be at the right time, right place at the right time, doing the right thing. And, uh, you know, that's, a, that's called efficiency. We're efficiently using our time. And so there's this constant uh, practice that needs to go on of, of correction, of adjustment, of improvement, and the things that are causing delays, uh, we want to remove. And so, just like martial arts, you want to you want to uh, uh, improve your efficiency, and through that improved efficiency, um, you get better results, better power transfer is what you, you get. So you can get a good punch or a kick and. Safe and so those, and I think data is going to be a lot like that too. Companies that can uh, predict, make correct predictions, and understand trends that are affecting the company are going to be companies that uh, win at what they're doing. And so there's going to be this stronger need to squeeze out more efficiency, uh, remove air, and um, provide better visibility and so one way that I, I think uh, companies can do that is to first start with the uh, uh, building your warehouse so you need to have a data warehouse that's not an option anymore um, all your data needs to be uh, put into warehouses and uh, um, the data then becomes accessible to uh, aggregation, the roles and the relationships in the data need to be discovered and it needs to be put into uh, a warehouse that can be accessed by a tool. And I, and I think that Python will become more of a self-generating tool. It just seems that that's the trend. Um, it, historically, Python has been a tool for building libraries and quickly uh, implementing rules and logic into code that's modular that can be then imported in and there's been a lot of sharing uh, of code and libraries that have, have really increased the functionality in the world from self-driving cars to uh, machine learning algorithms to deep learning algorithms to reinforcement learning algorithms. Most of the logic that runs machines can be run in Python and it's just amazing uh, the depth that this language has. And it's really better than Visual Basic. I used to program in Visual Basic and I loved it. You know, the, it was not uh, syntax heavy. It didn't have a lot of syntax sugar. And you could get a lot of work done quick. And that was the key in my mode of survival was getting a lot of work done quick. Um, and so we can um, utilize Python to become the programming language of the future. And, I, and the reason why I say that it probably is going to be 
the programming language in the future is there's such a huge investment of users that are programming and sharing code through Jupyter Notes in Python, and uh, that, that's allowing that, that those sharing of ideas is allowing uh, for a richer, richer ecosystem. And so as you get more people collaborating and more ideas being exchanged and, and uh, ideas that are being generated and becoming reality, you'll see more companies that are forming from those ideas. And so this, uh, uh, the older companies are being displaced by the new disruptive technologies. And the reason why is because they can scale uh, so quickly and provide value that uh, is marginally cheaper and so by reducing the margin of cost and increasing the margin of profit, it, it creates the incentive for a business model to form. And so that's uh, what I, I think. And I think that uh, machine learning and AI are still at an, in an infinite, infant level, very narrowly defined tasks that are being given to um, these algorithms. And the algorithms are very stochastic. They haven't changed much, you know? I mean, uh, really when you think about AI and machine learning, uh, a lot of it's still in the era of writing API commands. So they haven't moved to an era of um, language mapping where you can take natural language and translate that into machine language or code, code generators. That just hasn't happened yet. And, but I, I think that the world of visual design, UX, UI, um, middle layer coding, and even backend coding has to be all uh, machine driven, machine generated, because it, it just saves so much time to take the best algorithms um, and have them machine generated and then tested and tuned by machine to find algorithms that are optimum for parallel processing. Because we, we're, we're entering into is now, instead of chips running faster, we're running into, we're running uh, where we have multiple cores, 64 core, 128 core, 256 core, you know, and these uh, machines are sitting on desktops, servers in some cases, but they also now are powering up cloud where you're creating clusters and you basically are having access to a supercomputer. Now the problem behind that is the uh, um, cost per transaction but if you talk to people that are using these um, cloud applications, they love it because the cost of the transactions are so low. And even though they're running thousands and thousands of transactions a day, the cost is still very low. And so they're very pleased with uh, moving to the microservice technologies and, and so forth. Um, but I still think that uh, the world of self-generating code is, is um, 
has been lacking and the company that will start focusing on self-generating code uh, tools like Visual Studio that work uh, more like Re Refractor and um, help the programmer reduce the number of keystrokes and put the programmer really in the mode of analyzing what the machine's done and correcting for the code that's being generated. You know, we don't recreate linked lists today. We don't recreate stacks. Um, why is it that we're having to recreate classifiers and do the hyperparameter? And so that's opened the door for companies like Ro Data Robot, where you know they take numerous um, models and then they ingest data and they run tests against uh, various models and they uh, do the hyperparameter testing automatically. And so they've, they've built a environment where they can leverage more of the machine learning and AI. That you have Azure where you can create pipelines uh, visually that do scaling, regularization, um, they can uh, clean up the data, you can do, uh, do different uh, data cleaning techniques, and so you, you can eventually create this complete pipeline from ingestion of the data into a model uh, that's used for making predictions. And um, the pipelines are easy to use and, and, uh, and they represent the functionality of the API. But still, I, I think that those models are, are could be all be done in Python have the right script script and you understand the machine learning mathematics and so there's still the PhDs that are talking about the mathematics and neural nets and the, the math behind uh, statistical learning and the math behind machine learning and uh, it's really nerdy stuff and that's great I, I applaud you for the efforts you make but in business the, the, the key is getting things done in a simplistic way like uh, Power BI and, and uh, word processing. And I'm actually very impressed with Power BI because it provides all the functionality of, um, of a spreadsheet. So everything that you can do in a spreadsheet pretty much you can do in Power BI and SQL. Um, and so you can create uh, complex graphs and you also have the ability to put Python script in the Power BI and that uh, increases the functionality that you have with Power BI and so I think that was a smart move for Microsoft to join up with one of the most popular languages in the world for data analysis and then provide a way 
to create visuals within uh, Power BI. And so Power BI then becomes kind of a data broker where you can uh, uh, see your data, visualize it, and have high interactivity with the graphs and charts. And, um, and so from that standpoint, if data is just uh, meant to be understood, it seems like that the machine learning and AI could be more useful in the uh, in that realm. So as you set up your data model, uh, it can start looking to see if it can do classification. It can because there's really five things it can do. It can only look for trend. It can look for classification. It can look uh, for uh, groupings like clustering, and uh, it can ask is this weird or look for anomalies in the data outliers and then the last thing um, is it can do reinforcement learning it can adapt based on goals and so if you have a way through a natural language interface to to, to talk to power bi and ask it questions and tell it goals that you're trying to achieve it can decide whether or not it has enough information to answer the question or um, to learn from the data enough to uh, establish policies and achieve those goals. And it can provide the results back. Once you get to that point, you've gone beyond just tools that display data and then allow you to interact with the data and make decisions, but you're you're getting a machine that's starting to help you reason. And that's the uh, real value I see in the next step of AI is that it has to have that uh, problem-solving algorithm that human beings can interface with. And so as you you discuss with the machine the problems that you're trying to solve, whether it's uh, you're trying to predict. Uh, I have to got a had a slight interruption there. Um, so you know, again, going back to you know the value of of uh, problem-solving algorithms, it still keeps coming back. Is that uh, the real shortage? in the world is not data. The shortage is logic. And so the desire is to mechanize thought and and to uh, collectively share thought that's been proven. You know, So for example, in mathematics, there's corollaries and there's theories. And these corollaries and theories help build uh, and axioms help build a foundation for thought in mathematics so once you understand those basic algorithm or basic uh, principles and rules and laws like the associative law the distributive law then they can be applied to things like equations like trigonometry and algebra calculus differential equations they become building blocks of thought. 
And so we, we have mechanized thought in mathematics. And so a lot of the algorithms now in cellular automa, uh, simple programs that represent complex behaviors that could have been described by very long equations and differential equations like thermodynamics or uh, relativity now can be represented in simple algorithms, simple programs, fluid dynamics. And um, as you think about that, um, there is some genius to Mathematica in that it you could put in uh, your equations and through numerical computation methods it could give you an answer whether it was linear algebra uh, curvilinear equations you wanted to plot a polar equation all these type of things were languages for communication of ideas and so when you think about machine learning as a whole, uh, we have to start building uh, a foundation upon which we can then think and communicate with the machine that makes sense. So in Mathematica, there was a certain syntax that you had to set up your equations with, but it's very similar to what an equation looked like. Um, so that its parser could interpret the request that you were making and you know like for example it was a lot like python where you had simple commands for plotting and visualizing your data and so these type of things are really valuable when it comes to uh, power bi's that you can create visuals that are repeatable meaning that you can come in and see those visuals uh, consistently over time. But there are, should be other visuals that are dynamic that uh, uh, can be changed according to need or observation, either by the person or the machine. So new data comes in that uh, can, can possibly change the model and affect the visuals and there should be dynamic generation of those new visuals to help highlight things that are changing in the system. And so like uh, in the mode of reinforcement learning, the fifth point of machine learning, you would have something that uh, could adapt and uh, based on previous experience adapt to these new the new data uh, and it can form new strategies and new outputs. And so this uh, world of, of adaption in uh, reinforcement learning could move us forward as terms of just working long hours, creating lots of statistical graphs, trying to get something that means something important and then being able to communicate that uh, important idea to people that make decisions. At some point we have to be able to make decisions based on data and also 
on the language of mathematics. And uh, it's going to be challenging because, like I said earlier, we don't think mathematically. Um, I was listening to a conversation last night about when uh, times like that uh, a person had a parent who didn't immediately get married to the other parent and uh, there was like a six month gap and then there was uh, a time for courting again to repair and and, uh, and then they got married and they, they had been married, would have been married uh, 74 years. And it was interesting because as I was listening to that, I was listening to the uh, our other friend calculate the amount of time that it elapsed. And I wasn't thinking about time, but then he concluded, well, that it had been over a year that they had been separated between uh, the point that he left go to California and the time he came back and got married and so uh, you know that was a, just a funny story about getting cold feet but things worked out good in the end but we don't think mathematic we don't think quantitatively and the person who can think quantitatively and make approximations and think about intervals and draw conclusions it's going to get a much clearer picture of what's happening you know, for, from my standpoint, it was just a, a funny story about a person who got cold feet. But then, what did the data actually tell us, you know? Told us that they had been, uh, between the time that they were going to get married to the time that they actually got married was a year. And uh, and then that kind of changes maybe some of the scope of, of what had actually happened. Um, you know, a lot of times uh, you go into the store and and uh, they say, you know, um, uh, buy buy one item get one free. You know, or uh, you know, they they give a reduced price if you buy two items, or they give a reduced price if you get it in a larger pack and sometimes you think well okay if I get it in a larger pack the cost per item will, will be cheaper but not necessarily because sometimes the marketers think well this is more convenient so we should charge more for the convenience and if you're not running the math then sometimes you're not going to get the, the bargains that you think so you have to always you have to think mathematically also with common metrics as I was talking about earlier in the week we don't think in terms of odds. So we, we uh, take chances when we shouldn't take chances. And then we don't take proper chances when the odds are highly in our favor. I remember one time uh, we were having a family game and and uh, we were playing, I think it was blackjack. It was the only time, first time in my life I probably ever played it, you know, because I'm not a gambler. Um, even though I probably think like a gambler. But uh, as I I realized that I I had what they call a royal flush, and um, I quickly looked on the internet what the odds of getting the royal flush were, and they were so astronomically 
high, uh, low, excuse me, to get it in a royal flush that it was like, there's no, I figured that there was no way that the house could beat me. So I just put everything that I had on with that royal flush and I held the line with those odds. And it was interesting because the broker just had to keep, you know, throwing down cards and, and, uh, um, we only had a finite amount of play money and I ended up, uh, bankrupting the house. So the, the interesting thing behind that is, is the odds were in such a, in my favor that I had to overcome my own fear and hesitation that he might be able to come up with something better than I had. And, uh, and so I could move with real confidence. And I think that's kind of what statistics does is that, you know, we, we look at confidence bands, we look at, you know, look at the data. And sometimes the data has some common sense to it, you know, um, and other times it doesn't. But sometimes we might think, well, uh, it would make sense if the bird seed were getting larger, that the beaks would get bigger. But we don't know that that was the cause and effect. Um, just because we see a phenomena does not necessarily correlate it to a cause. And so we have to go through the rigor of determining of the whether or not the mean and the standard deviation, which would be your variance, um, will lead to a conclusion if we have a large enough sampling, if we can create a simulation through replication and we can get a distribution that's a normal distribution, we can stay with, with a reasonable confidence that these this data per correlation could be either true or false. And uh, it's just interesting to me, statistically, when you think about it, um, if you could find cases where you had such high levels of confidence where it didn't go over those boundaries and yet it be false and those would be called outliers and I guess there is possibilities of black swans occurring because we don't have all the data and if we've just looked at the data certain amounts of data we might draw the wrong conclusions and so there's this constant desire to gather more data and that's where the element of deep learning comes in is the gathering more features and letting uh, the hidden layers discover signal in the code, signal in the data. And so I think there's a really valid point to competing with statistical methods, linear regression, which you can you can put linear regression. You, uh, you can use a, a, a logistic regressor to do your regression from your data. So it's it's in the machine learning algorithms. The statistics are in the machine learning algorithms. But we have to understand what those coefficients of interception and slope are. And so you know we can grab the coefficients from our classifier and we can plot them out 
run a range of numbers uh, for x, and so we can solve the uh, for x and y on the, the line and, and get a slope. And we should understand that, and we should use that in our analysis of looking at the data. Um, so I I find it I find this uh, this line of thinking very provocative, uh, in a, in the sense that it does get us to think about our data and our trends, and uh, and so we we get to the point where you know we're you you're, we're probably thinking well does every company have a statistician? Maybe maybe not. Does every company does every company have a machine learning department of business intelligence? Probably not. <coughs> Is everyone programming in Python? Probably not. So there, you know, I haven't even started looking at programming in R yet. I'm looking at it. I've got it marked on my courses. I've got quite a few, uh, you know, 10 or 15 courses that I've got marked uh, for doing R programming, but I haven't started programming in R yet. And so, uh, and there's there's other languages that are becoming popular, uh, other frameworks for storing the data. But at the end of the day, you need to understand statistical thought and the kind of the rigors of how to analyze the data, how to uh, how to think about asking questions about the data, and those are and those are more important, I think, is the questions that you're asking, because by asking the right question, you can uh, divert resource and attention to gathering data that's necessary to answer that question and uh, it's really not known what the outcomes of those predictions will be or those answers but I'm sure that uh, as the world pushes for more efficient efficiency and conclusions are being made there needs to be uh, companies that verify and confirm that those conclusions are correct. Just like, uh, you know, we don't want to have politicians with their own agendas telling us what the conclusions are. We want to be able to look at the data, determine for ourselves if the, the conclusions are correct. And uh, we'll, uh, you know, we go from there. Well, I'll uh, be signing off until next week and uh, uh, have an enjoyable week. And until we talk again, good luck in your coding.